You're listening to Race Capital with me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise, on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. And today we are excited to have Damon Harris of the Teal House Company to break down what's going on with Richmond housing, renting, how it happened, and how we need to change it. Stay tuned. I'm Damon Harris with Teal House Company. Thanks so much for being here, Damon. Thank you for inviting me. You know, Damon, I have been following you and you are someone that I feel has a very different take on real estate. To me, you've been another source of information of what's happening in our communities, real estate, particularly from a black lens, because you are able to bring a historic view of real estate and particularly to this place, space and time of Richmond, Virginia. So First off, before we dive in, tell us a little bit about Teal House Company and your work. Teal House Company, we're a real estate group. So we do all of the traditional things, such as helping home buyers, home sellers, and investors. You know, all the things that make sure that we could pay light bills and taxes. Um, doing that work, we slowly discovered that they were major, there were major gaps in information, resources, and services for people of color. So we had to make a choice whether or not we were going to address those directly or do what everyone else does and just say it every now and then, hey, we have something for this, hey, we do this, and then we go go back to our business of just selling houses. So we made a choice and there's a lot of reasons why we made that choice, but we made a choice to just be inherently purposeful. And so we work, we build a real estate sales business through our advocacy and education. Um, so we created an academy to educate people on not just buying a home, but what that means as far as being financially literate, as far as also what obstacles and barriers have been put in place through white supremacy, because real estate itself has been built upon white supremacy. So. I cannot address the gaps by not addressing the reason for those gaps. So we can't just say it, we have to educate people because it's one thing to say the words like gentrification and blockbusting and credit score. But it's another thing when you realize where the credit score came from or what gentrification is a result of or, or what does that mean in terms of a me getting rich because everyone says home ownership equals wealth and let me create generational wealth. And what does that, people don't, we don't really know what that means. So we created the academy to address those needs. And the new need has come up with the housing crisis. How can we impact that? So we are now focused on investing heavily, as well as property management heavily, because renters have always been omitted from the housing conversation, unless it's been from a standpoint of affordable housing and affordability, but they never speak to a lot of renters when they talk about that they always connect affordable housing to poverty and that's not the case and they always connect poverty to uneducated and to housing projects and that's not the case either so we created tillville to be our way to kind of dismantle and disrupt how that stuff is done so all that comes from tillhouse company so it's a big story but that's kind of the meat of who we are and what we do and you say we with Teal House Company. Who is we? Oh, I'm sorry. Teal House Company 
is Satara Harris, my wife, and I. She actually is the one that decided we were going to go into real estate. And I was pretty much told how to make that work. Not even for her, but for me, right? Because she was mm-hmm. off and running and I had to do what I had to do to catch up. And as she was doing what she was doing, we encountered all of those spaces because my background is in social work. Her background was in commercial banking. So I always see things from a lens of the forgotten or systemic reasons or systemic issues. And she always used to focus on bottom line, but now we're able to kind of come in. It's natural because social workers don't always think of money, kind of really don't like money, but she, her background was all about money. And she was always like, Damien, you have to, whatever you do, can you, can you make some money with that, please? You know, I, when I was a social worker, I would give away our strollers and give away our cribs and someone needed gas. So I may not have gas money, but they now have gas money. So she never really cared until I realized later on she did. So she's the we. So my, my wife, Satara, and I, we created Till House Company 2014. I really appreciate that intersection, by the way, and the way that you all are bringing that intellectual intersection together and you're doing it through a partnership, through your marriage, intimacy, and business now, which also creates a sustainability that we don't always see with businesses as well. Right. Um, but I appreciate that that explanation of how you all have manifested this type of approach to real estate and it makes a lot more sense. So what's happening in the historically Black communities in Richmond that has really impacted your work right now? And that, that's a perfect question that can help. Hopefully me answering that one will be the why we do what we do. There was an event held at the Valentine Museum two years ago. I forget the name of the events, but they would have all these educational informational sessions on the controversial history of Richmond. We went, I was expecting great information and some direct information. And I sat in the audience and this one was on housing. I sat in the audience and I saw them talk about certain communities as if they were foreigners. And I saw the narrator who's, you know, popular person just completely co-sign what they were talking about. Was this housing meeting at the Valentine, the same one where Omari spoke up? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then, cause I, cause, when I saw it, I expected it, right? And I was just like, all right. And I, when you look around and say, oh, there he is, it's a, it's a moment. There weren't, there weren't any other voices. You know, fair housing issues or the numerous banks that are associated with that regional housing plan right there, uh, that the brother right there is a part of. But I really think that, you know, a lot of the solutions that get proposed about affordable housing and whatnot, we're accepting these solutions that are proposed by the people that are the perpetrators of the illness. You know, the the banks that don't want to earn less money, you know, the CEOs that don't want less profits, Dominion Energy that is a partner of, you know, the the, the regional plan that, that you, you're a part of, brother. Um, you know, if we continue to look towards these organizations that are benefiting off of the, the issue, you know, I don't think that we're going to come to a solution. Um, you know, even with a lot of the, the nonprofit uh, nonprofits that, that that propose to tackle housing instability and evictions and whatnot, 
they, they get funding and it's tied up in the administrative costs and none of that money really trickles down to the residents who really need it that they're serving. Um, you know, a lot of the successes of the program, I'm gonna, I just gotta contextualize this, I'm sorry, I'm gonna get to my question in a second. Um, a lot, so the, the, the successes of the program that we're in, Marty, was because we got organizers that actually know the city that are on the ground and, you, and we paid them. We paid people like myself and like LaFonda, the other organizer, and we put the money into the community right there on the ground level. You know, and that, that was the successes of our program. Um, so public housing, a lot of people laughed. I heard people chuckling when the woman from Creighton said, oh, it was one of the best houses that she ever had had and everything. And, and I think people don't know the history of public housing. It's like, that's kind of, it was absent in the conversation. We're talking about affordable housing and this and that, you know, but public housing, as we know it, came from the hood at the black people rioted all over this country for after Dr. King was assassinated. And that's how we got public housing in this country. You know, the Housing Act and the GI Bill that went to mostly white people prior to that, you know, we got the HUD Act for black people. And it wasn't, it's not just for housing, it's for economic progress. There's all kinds of programming and everything that's supposed to be with that. But nowadays, we have no problem with letting people say, oh, public housing is deteriorating. Let's, let's just privatize it. Let's just, you know, let the developers come in and, and take the land and everything. We have no problem with saying that, you know. And what earlier you said, like, the problem is race. The problem is race. So my, my question really is that, like, if, if we continue to look towards these neoliberal policies and these modern Dixiecrat policies and the stuff coming out of the people that are actually benefiting, have benefited for decades off of the illness, how are we ever going to really solve it? Like, how do we get out of that cycle thinking that the banks and the real estate industry can really solve it or Dominion Energy can help us solve this when they are benefiting? And I mean, to a certain extent, still perpetrating these things onto the black community and the working class community. How do we get out of that? I think you said a lot of really interesting things that are making me think a lot. And uh, it's, I think a lot of it comes down to an abdication of responsibility from the federal government, mm -hmm. which set up HUD and the housing authorities and then just completely defunded them. It wasn't as if Amari had spotlight time. It was looking around, nothing's being said. While you have stakeholders in the presence, yeah, reporters. I forget the exact quote, but he said something to why would people want to live in Blackwell with his current conditions, right? Now, he's that go-to Black reporter. He lives in Ashland. And... All I could say was there was no way I could walk out and continue to do real estate the same way, knowing that the legacy residents were looked at as low-end commodities and not people, even by people who claim that they're here to discuss inequities. I was just gonna mention really quickly about the inequities that you're talking about is the are these public spaces where we are holding these educational conversations and we are leaving out intentionally and or not much of the information is also part of the the inequity that's happened in Richmond because many people do not understand 
what what the root cause of a lot of this is because our public spaces that are supposed to be telling us this are not. So it, I just wanted to, to raise that point as well. So you, you were speaking about the different parts of Richmond. And, and that the different parts of Richmond could go right into what you were just speaking of because, and that's why when we started to transform our business, we started with education. And it wasn't education based off of credit score. So I can get me a check down the road from you buying a home. It was based off of Blackwell equals this, Northside equals this, white flight, urban, urban planning has equaled housing authority and housing, you know, and I refuse to really call them the projects because there are people living there. But everything that was connected to our community, the Carver, the Jackson Ward, East End, all these places were, were, were designed based off of preventing information and access to resources. So when we look at the, the communities today, that, you know, when people talk about the Richmond that we're living in right now, the Richmond that we're living in now is, is not reflective of Richmond. It is not, and it, but it's directly reflective of the Richmond they want it to be. And when you say they, who is they? They is the transition, right? Everyone that's promoting transition, everyone that's promoting, like how, for example, when we talk about the communities, how lack of access to public transit is a key inequity, right? And it's something that community members have been speaking for years, but yet the pulse gets all this money, gets all this hype, and it's even may even get extended just so they could get to Willow Lawn two minutes early than they could on the same bus line to go to the same place. But yet that bus depot originally didn't look like how they wanted it to look to match the shift and the demographics of Richmond. Now we have families that take three to four hours to get to work just on broad alone. Now someone can get from, they grab their coffee and grab something from Old Navy in five minutes. And if you want to find out more about this Pulse conversation, please visit a past race at Capitol episode with transit organizer Omari Al-Qaddafi that was really speaking about this as the Pulse was proposed, as well as at the one year anniversary when we had the episode. When I hear narratives like deconcentration of poverty, I'm like, y'all, this is, we got to, we got to have a bigger conversation here. And so to your view, and right now a big conversation as it should be, is Creighton Court. What does the displacement of families living in Creighton Courts mean from an estate market viewpoint? Right, and, it's, and the same thing, and, and it's, we can even stay where you were when you were talking about the decomposition of poverty and connect that to housing. Because one thing that I've discovered is that, and even my own personal, if my home isn't in order, I cannot focus on doing anything besides sitting on the sofa. I can't think about growth. I can't think about opportunity, possibility. I won't like anyone in my house, not the dog, not the TV, not the fit. I cannot concentrate. So when, when people have been forced to live in poverty and the, the poverty structure was created by, by dynamics of this city, in this region. Richmond was based off of inequality and based off of white supremacy. And if you don't address that and dismantle that, you're just putting lipstick on a dirty old pig. And sooner or later, it's going to come off in the same city still there. Now you said something about people don't want to live in certain, don't want to live in a house that isn't necessarily kept up. 
And many folks would say, well, why didn't those people keep up their homes in Creighton Court? And what would you say to that? If someone was to say that, then they have no idea how the system works. Even the, even the term slums, even the, when you look at certain communities, especially in Richmond, you can't keep up something that you don't own. They're not allowed. Mm. Mm. Not allowed. And even whether it's in, you can't get a battery in the fire alarm. You can't get your heat right. So how in the world is it my fault that you, I'm looking at dilapidated properties when the city is purposely disinvesting themselves from there to give the, the, the vision that it's the people that are the problem. And that's a traditional, that's the old school playbook. They couldn't even dust off a new playbook. It's like, you just like, you just, just take an old one and just start over. Like at least you have all these smart people create a new playbook, change the title at least. Look, and it's not even that they're using the old playbook. They use the same playbook in every industry, right? Because when you are talking about this, I hear policing. This is the broken window effect, right? We talk about social work. We know we can go into this one where if you disinvest in their areas, there is this broken window effect of where you do have this cognitive, undeserving, unmotivated, and almost a shame that comes into this capitalism society where we're supposed to have a certain looking way, right? But it's not your fault. And again, we are conditioned to think it is and to say, well, in order for them to do better, we have to scatter them apart. Therefore, we must deconcentrate poverty. They can't do it by themselves. And that's, to me, why we have to police them, get criminalize them. And again, not just say they can't keep up with their own area, but now we're creating fear from these folks for everyone else of, again, why we can't have all Black people living together. Goodness, I think about to start sweating. Like, the, 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 <laughs> I'm just saying, like, all right, and what you just said, I could go Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, Marcus David Peters, same thing. All of those situations happen in areas that were directly connected to poverty-constricted communities. And when they talk about deconcentrating poverty and even what's going on in the Black communities now, where are they going to go? Are you, huh. are you breaking down poverty by moving, having people move a street over? Okay, so let's talk about this historical context real fast, Damon, right? We've already seen this in Richmond because, again, it's not a new playbook, is that when they're going to go and fix up these areas, quote unquote, they lose people. We don't know where people are going. And, and that's what they say, right? But we do actually know where people are going. They're living with their families. They're on the street. Now we have multiple generations and very small units, or they're going to the counties and finding other places to live if they can afford that with other folks. And they're losing touch with their uh, natural networks, their communities, the, and anything that they know that could possibly help them. Um, and to think that we do these things alone in our everyday lives, we're forgetting uh, who we're relying on and how privileged we are to be connected to certain environments and how we lose that when we are forced out of places. But I just wanted to mention, as we are talking about Creighton Court and moving them out, number one, where are they going? Number two, I would love a real, your quick thoughts on vouchers, because that's a big thing that politicians talk about that will fix this problem. Many people will have vouchers. And, and I do do want to talk about, again, because I, I know we, we jumped on the broken window effect, but the displacement in families and the real, the estate, the real estate market view. Right. It, it, no, we jumped around, but it's still in the same pocket. 
right? Because how the market works and full disclosure, we have tenants, we have properties. Um, we use a different form of property management where we focus on upward mobility, not housing you. Um, and our rentals should be used as a tool for you to decide what you wanna do next in life, not a way to keep you stuck and trapped by our leases, right? Um, however, the market, with that being said, the market is dictating even where those vouchers will go. And that's not by happenstance, right? So I could be a family of four, my vouchers for 1500, where am I gonna go? And I need a three, four bedroom. I'm still in the same community because I can't go anywhere else because it's 1600. It may just be a hundred dollars more than the voucher limit. You know, like just maybe $50 more. I don't have, to, landlords don't have to discriminate in your face. What's your name on that paper? Let me see your rental history. Next. So, and, and don't, don't have to say anything about it. And unfortunately, legislators that are making these voucher um, championing laws are saying, well, now uh, landlords are unable to discriminate based on vouchers. But we all know, like you said, let's look at the name. Let's look at some history, where you've been. We can understand that people are absolutely going to still continue to be discriminated against. Right. And the market is moving that. There's always been vouchers. If vouchers was such a tool for success, how will it, how, what, how are there such high eviction rates if voucher was a tool for success? You tell me someone's paying $8 a month or whatever people think people are paying, even though these people with these vouchers got two jobs, they, they take childcare, they're doing grocery shopping because God forbid they work two extra hours that week, they lose their food stamps. So the people are out here busting their butt to stay in places that you're placing them. And these landlords have bought these properties that low dollar marks, Low dollar, low dollar values back in the day. They've kept them for a while. They're just eating off the equity. They're over leveraged and they have underperforming properties. So their only tool is to get some of the voucher. And these people that are in these homes, these private homes with these vouchers are at the, the mercy of their landlords. I was in a house, we bought it. Let's gotta say we bought this house from a slum landlord not too long ago that had a tenant in there with a hole in that front door right off a of Mechanicsville turnpike. No working stove wash and dryer in the home with no wash and dryer hookup. It was, what in the, it was there for storage with no wash and dryer hookup, no adequate heat. And the landlord was like, oh, well, she's under a month-to-month -month lease. He had kept this woman, this family trapped in this home for seven years. Damon. Seven years, but yet you have inspections, but that's a voucher. She got the voucher though. This woman drives from Richmond to Dinwiddie to work for Amazon. And you telling me that if she's busting her tail to that extent, you can barely get me to go to Verina from the West End. Or you, I'm, you know, you got to pay me to make me go to Dinwiddie, you know, then to go past oh, the other side of Petersburg. I'm as well relocate. Come on, come but on. But she's doing that every day to stay in a house where there was a hole in her front door. There was mold. There was, you name it. It wouldn't have, if I was, had a buyer, a regular buyer, it wouldn't have passed an FHA home inspection. But yet she's, this man has been cashing in on her vouchers every, every month for seven years. That's what people, that's what you're placing people in when you talk about the voucher is, that, is that another form of great white hope that's going to save these people. Great white hope didn't work back then and it doesn't work right now. And so there's other ways to do it, but voucher programming, 
the city who claims to be, and you may go on, this may be a question later, the city that claims to be for the people and cares about affordable housing hasn't done one thing to increase housing at the same pace that they have done to not renew leases, displace people. You walk through a hillside and you're like, this place looks like it needs to just be blown up. But they're doing it on purpose. Anyway, so, so I don't know where that came from. That's not the question, but. It sounded like an appropriate answer. What would you say to them saying, well, we haven't gotten affordable housing right because our trust funds and our initiatives haven't been properly funded? <laughs> they haven't got housing right because it hasn't been a priority. They, they haven't gotten housing right because it doesn't benefit them to move at a pace that matches the change that they're trying to create. Why, uh, you talk the trust funds, whether you do trust funds as part of Richmond and RICO, or you even do private trust funds like Maggie Walker, whatever, what do you, do, do, they have the inventory. They have the inventory if they want it, but they choose Number one, they choose what inventory is going to be marketed on the open market to slum invest to predatory investors anyway. For example, they just in, they just had a auction February seventeenth. One hundred and twenty properties on an auction list. Eighty five percent of those properties were in on the south side, mm. right? Mm. They were selling everything, land, commercial property, you name it. They was and they they were being sold at a premium. But there's also homes that you could. All those uh, 115 this month, that in February, they had another 120 in November. But you tell me there's no housing stock. But you tell me there's, that the land trust is only going to get 30 over here. And all of a sudden, you make this big partnership that we're going to do what we're supposed to be doing anyway. Praise us. But yet, we're sitting on this ton of inventory. But yet, let a big time developer come in, you give them wine and you give them, you want to help them brand it and you get all the black faces you want to kind of say, these are good people. You do, you do whatever you can to get that part done, but you do not show the same vigor to fight that. And then you have people that bring you smoke and say, look, this is what's going on. And, oh, he's crazy. Oh, he's just an agitator. Oh, he's doing this. But yeah, you sure enough can cut a check for someone to hold a sign at your meeting. No, you know, but you can't cut a check for that family to get their deposit waived. It doesn't make sense. But so if they wanted to address it, they could address it beyond the old school playbook because that's what they did when they redeveloped communities in the 50s and the 40s and the 60s. We're going to give you opportunity and then we're going to have you come back. And then we don't have a real number. Like how, how does Crate not have a real number? How do you break something and not know how you're going to fix it? I got kids. I cannot tell him I'm going to break your bike and not tell him how you're going to get another bike. Come on. He would look at me like I lost my mind. So I've been married for 20 years. I cannot tell my wife I'm going to break down a dresser and then she's just supposed to put her clothes on the floor. And, and that's a really great point. And, and it makes people that are not living in these communities like Creighton that are being targeted believe that the people of Creighton are saying, yeah, cool. I'm good with this or believe that they have some sort of voice in this or, or believe anything because, you know, that's what they, they want to believe so that they can sleep at night and, and believe that they're going to be better off and 
The truth is that if you've been following anything with RRHA is that you've seen them do nothing but silence public awareness, public opinion, public comment. You, you see just in the most recent news about RRHA having a direct financial conflict of interest mm. with the trust funds. And people are like, well, we can work that out. Let's just continue to give them money. And so again, it's, we're not questioning people and confronting this, even though they're using the same old playbook by give us more money and more control and we will produce for you, even though we have not ever. I don't think that was a question, but. But, 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 <laughs> but it's a question that goes directly to the violence of displacement. Displacement is a violent act and you can't do it by, you cut my arm off, but here's a voucher that's a Band-Aid, right? Legacy of our society has been, is being shifted and shipped away like, like cattle. You, you know, families, you know how hard it, hard it is to not be able to go home. And, and if we can't go home, that means we're out here living. We're not safe, we're not secure, we're not protected. And then you use terms of limited inventory. You, you use terms of the market, you use all these terms, but you violated my entire family's legacy and I have nowhere to go. And it's not just when they, you know, they always talk about affordable housing, they make it sound like it's poor people. It's not just poor people. I have teachers that want to try to move back to the South side where they came from and they can't. Now they're down in Chesterfield and we got to drive through communities where we got, where we lock our doors because we're driving through Chesterfield. And I got to make sure my windows down and my seatbelts up so we could get out of there because that's where the prices have moved. But yet you want us to, you want, you know, they have no, you know, the whole point is they have no plan for displacement. And what I actually saw from a tweet from, again, friends of the show, Omari al-Qaddafi, is that when we do displace these families in Creighton and there is quote unquote crime that perhaps comes from people out here living in a desperate type of mindset, that will be our own fault and should not be those of the people. And therefore then a reason to increase policing and resources to policing to even further criminalize us, those same people that have just been displaced. Exactly. I mean, unless I'll be able to get food at the new casino, you know, but, uh, but oh, it's, 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 then, or, Oh, wait a second. I can go to 25th Street Marketplace and go to the grocery store now. How am I not supposed to act? How am I not, how am I not supposed to feel like you've been walked? And, and one of the things I, I decided I'm not going to stop, not going to hold my tongue for anything after like George Floyd. George Floyd, we all know what happened. We all know that living in an over-policed community equals you're never at ease, you're never at peace, you're never secure in your own community. Here in this area, they put you, you people, people in these communities are walking around with someone's knee on their back 24 seven. And if I stand on the porch with me, myself and my, my brother, my cousin, if we all look like I made, we would have to disperse. The new people coming in, they're developing these properties with a front porch on purpose, right? Wow. They get a front porch. I get, we can't be too many of us on the same stoop. When I, when I, before I knew what, it, I remember being on the north side and they would have a sign on these, these porches saying, do not congregate or activity. Now you can't sell a house without a front porch. 
So when I was still social working, a story I would always tell is when they were building those new homes out off of Yancey and off these other places, and they were not putting back doors on these homes. And we would ask them, why don't these families get back doors? And right out of their mouth, they told us, because we were social workers, service providers, right? And again, social workers are part of this awful system that's just criminalizing families and displacing folks, which is why many folks are getting out of it. But we were in that room and these people felt safe enough to tell us, well, it's because when, when SWAT comes, we don't want them to be able to get out the back door. And, you know, when they have those type of outsource outside spaces, what the kind of behavior that encourages. These homes that they were building are, are affordable homes, right? This is when we were building homes for folks. These are these homes. And, and, and so what you're saying is absolutely right. We've always had a choice of how we're doing this and for whom. And when we were building it for Black people, for knowing Black people would be there, how we built it, and now knowing who will not be there, how we're building it. And so I ask you, Damon, do you think that Richmond believes housing is 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 a right? No. I believe that Richmond is, Richmond's, uh, Rich, Richmond government amasses that bait and switch, right? They, they need, they would, they would be, be, be better at doing magician shows and running the city because they use a sleight of hand and wordplay better than any group of people that have ever seen. And they use people that look like you and you're like, wait, what did it, you, you, got, you got to process it. A lot of times it may take a day or two. You'd be like, well, well, hold up. You can't have city council people talking about housing and their slum landlords at the same time. You can't, you can't have council people that would get mad if you question them. And then you realize that homeboy is running a tax assessment program and then his homeboy gave to their campaign six weeks ago. Like, what? So how am I supposed to, but then housing is a right. We want everyone, we came up with the Richmond 300 plan. We did the 300 plan, even though the, the, the 300 plan is itself a bait and switch use of data. Number one, using black faces is something that Richmond as a fallen capital the Confederacy has been playing expert level at since 1977, when what I say a lot of the Marsh era came into effect of how we just basically partnered with white neoliberalism thought in order to save what we thought was going to be black political leadership. And we thought we could not do it without it. And so we have truly ingrained it in our black political culture here in Richmond when it's really, if you lift the hood up off these faces, it's the same white supremacy thought, like you said, this bait and switch with us and because we see representation, we're buying into it. But once we read things like the Richmond 300 plan, we see that they're not actually meeting the needs of the people. It's just validating these asks of big developers with some fancy language, some cool outreach plan that they can validate themselves on. And now when people are speaking out against Creighton, we've got all these folks like, well, we've already voted on the Richmond 300. So what's your, you weren't there. You didn't say anything then. So now apparently you don't get a voice and we shouldn't still resist this. Right. And, and, it, and it all goes right back to if Richmond believe housing is a right. You have people, it's easy for them to craft a narrative when they're providing you with the paper, the pen, and, the, and everything else. And when you look at their zoning, they're acting like changing zoning, number one, is a fix all. We change the zoning, we all, okay. 
But who's gonna, it's the same thing when opportunity zones popped up. Number one, the people that you're talking about don't even qualify for the opportunity zones. Number two, when we're talking about the, the, the zoning, it doesn't fix the problem. All it's going to do is invite more Navy Hills there because now they got, they don't even have to mention anything. They get, we got zoning, we can do whatever they want and you still need to have deep pockets to maximize the zoning. And then you still have the whim of that equaling someone creating entry-level rentals and entry-level home ownership. And there's nothing, the city could put parameters around all these things if they wanted to without rezoning to ensure that what they can't maximize what they have here. So zoning is one of those things, the development that they're part of looks really great. I was at 23th Street Marketplace today, but my aunt has always been on that side of town. And so I went there today because she needed me to drop something off, but I'm like, she needed stuff dropped off for years. Mm. And, but it's pretty and they, they use us to market it, but it was, it was meant for the new Richmonder. It was meant for the Richmonder and the 300 plan. When it, if the, the Richmond 300 plan, all you need to do is read the first six pages and you can close it. Because when you talk about the, and the people, the housing professionals know the disparities. They use 80% AMI like it's a real thing, knowing ahead of time it's not. And knowing that it needs to be 60, 55 maybe, in order for it to actually be an impactful percentage that actually would provide stable and secure housing for people. They do that. So if they don't, if they don't acknowledge the AMI, if they're not going to talk, if they're going to just gloss over the fact that, was it, like $127,000 income for the new Richmonder versus twenty five for the, the legacy Richmonder, which I know a lot of Richmonders, they wish they could make twenty five grand a year. They wish they could pull Come in on. 25 Come on. And they could have two jobs while they're doing it. And they could, there's people that have full-time jobs and figured out a way to use this raggedy bus system to get to work. So my answer to that is no. And I don't care who you who you have that do the voiceover for the casino. I don't care who, I don't care what that what they're giving out at the marketplace until I see some direct actions that direct impact. The system needs to be broke down because it's a system that's completely based off of white supremacy. Ooh, so, you know, I want to pull something out that you said because my next question and one of my final questions is, what could Richmond do to make you say that housing for all in Richmond is a right? You mentioned entry-level rentals, entry-level affordable housing. So what would Richmond have to do for you to say, yes, Richmond is prioritizing housing as a right? Number one, I think that instead of, now they could, they could do the, the cheap seat stuff and say, okay, we're going to have an advisory board, right? But they also could it's show improved. It's not lip service. It's show improved. It's develop. Use Creighton as an example. You could. They could. They have space. They have land space. They have uses. Even, even if it, even if they do say, okay, the the the, the land trust of, could be funded a little bit more. Fund them and direct them, and then have them ensure that the land trusts are actually making homes that are affordable. They're still making the land trusts. Then aren't making homes that are affordable. Mm. So it doesn't matter. So change guidelines. If you change guidelines and if you do things on purpose with intention, just like a lot of how this conversation is intentional and the work you do is intentional. There is no space for wordplay. There is no space for, you know, this osmosis is going to happen or this is going to be a direct result. There has to be intentional action. And that's how you know housing is the right. It's, it's, it's when you fund things, you're funding things for the greater good of the people 
not a, a tiny, tiny percentage of the people, and then everybody else is eating off of it. Like you have to sacrifice your coin for a bigger coin later. And once you do, once I see them leave some money on the table for other people, then I'll start to say, hey, once I start to see like, the, maybe they change how they do tax sales. Maybe you create a, instead of having a land bank or land trust, you create someone like you to be able to go in and buy something using a land bank. You create parameters for people to invest responsibly. Instead of using historical tax credits as a way for people, rich people to make even more money, maybe use that a way to gift the people that are in the historical neighborhoods in the first place. We really are always just saying, look, for us to get anything, we have to just continue to let white people get rich. That was a line. That's a line I hear from Richmond black faces that are connected to these corporations all the time. They're going to say, look, white people are going to get rich. They're going to get rich. So there's nothing we can really do about this. We might as well get this little bit that we can. When the truth is, I swear that was their talking point during Navy Hill. I have it was on repeat. There are intentional steps that we can take. These guidelines can absolutely be changed. We need to stop acting like they are put in stone as well, because that's part of the intention. And we need to also realize when and whom are the outsiders and when these outsiders seem to be okay for our local government. This past summer, much of the movement was discredited because they were saying outsiders were here in Richmond pushing this movement and carrying it, which was a lie. And what we have been talking about this entire time is that Richmond is building a new Richmond for outsiders. And data point that stuck out to me on your Twitter recently was this data about Northside as you all were looking for properties. Would you mind telling us about that a little bit? All right. So I haven't. I, I, I usually check the market daily, but I, but I'm, I look for different data points now because it kind of helps me construct strategies and plans of how I can better service my clients. Um, so as you mentioned, Northside. Last week, Northside had 32 houses for sale. The week before, they had 28 houses for sale. Both times, this week or last week, it doesn't really matter. 85% of those homes are owned by outside investors. And they were owned by, and this is what everyone thinks of outside investors, this big, huge conglomerate, this big, huge people with deep pockets. They're regular, they're mom and pops. They're regular folks that watch something on HGTV. And they have, because they have the gift of privilege and they may not have ever come from tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debt, or they, they may have had the option of having homes that actually appreciated in value, right? They, they can actually pull money and then go and get a loan. And now they're buying these homes because they're all individuals. And if you check the SEC, the, the State Corporation Commission, you'll see that they're small investors. It's, they may do three houses a year. And while we're waiting for Maggie Walker to do something, while we're waiting for the city to do something, all it takes is that one person to sell that one house at that price. Done. Finished. There's nothing you can do about it. And now it's not just one that they sell in, 27 out of 29? I mean, I'm sorry, I didn't let you finish your story. No, the, exactly. It's the entire community. And But then you cross the side and go to, just say you decide to get in your car, you leave the north side, you go straight. And next thing you know, you're on Huguenot Bridge, you're right over there, and they have 30 houses for sale, 28 of them are being sold by, the fam by families. Only one is an investor. So... Investors obviously can pick and choose where they're going. 
So if there's a if there's a green light to say, hey, Richmond is up for grabs, they go to Richmond the same way how people are like, what's going on with Petersburg? Petersburg is just so raggedy. Petersburg is this. Well, 85% of Petersburg is owned by other people. So what do you expect? With, oh, so we're going to change the entire Petersburg with 15% of the population owning anything. What am I supposed to so they 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 hold it and they hold it, and then when it's time to make this bread, we open it up. And that's what they're doing. Houses, there's a house of, that's selling on the north side right now for $460,000 that once was on the market five year, years ago for $145,000. Oh that cannot be done if these people weren't aided and abetted by broken housing policies from a city that's on the same token saying, let's re revitalize Brooklyn Boulevard. Like it's... it's aiding and abetting. You are correct. This is criminal violence against communities. Damon Harris, how, what else would you like to say or anything else before we get out of here? I want to say after this conversation, I hope I'm still in business. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but to be honest, the only what, the things I have to say is that we, gentrification and the shifting of our community and displacement is not an occurrence that we can't stop. And gentrification is not a guarantee. Yes, through blockbusting and through red lines, through all these big keywords and smart things, it's inevitable that some type of reinvestment has to happen. But it has to happen because you stripped us from everything for so long. Has no choice but to happen. It's gonna happen anyway. But this hyper movement that we're seeing in this area can be stopped and controlled if people, like your voices, if people actually listen instead of seeing these voices of different opinions as a threat to their bread or a threat to their reputation, or if everyone wants to be the smartest person in the room. We can't, everyone wants to be a captain and there's one ship. We're all one family, we're all connected. If you live in Chesterfield, what happens in Richmond is directly impacts you. You can't keep building new exclusive neighborhoods. Sooner or later, it's gonna, we're gonna come. We're not poor. I'm gonna move there. So, you know what I mean? So, it's, it's, so it, we can stop it. You have a lot of great Richmonders. I may talk junk about what's going on, but you have incredible people in this city. This city has incredible human capital. You just have to give these people a chance for their humanism to match what's on these, what's on these data points. Mm -hmm. and, and humanism is profitable. Come on. That you, you can't, and that's what I think. Like, that's how I run my business. I sold more houses than I ever have the more junk I started talking. And, it's, and, and I believe it's because people know the truth. You just want someone to provide you with support around that truth so you, in turn, can make proper choices and proper decisions. And it's not just because you talk junk more. It's because you put action behind that junk, right? And that junk you're talking is information. It's educational tools, right? It's not just right. talking junk and now people are attracted to that and and people can demonize that and in mm. building platforms, right? But the truth is the junk that you talk is just the truth. It's empowering people and it's building a new way that is sparking imagination and home ownership and maintaining rentals that folks have never seen before. And that's scary so for some folks, especially when you're empowering folks that aren't supposed to have power there, Damon. Right, you, you're not, and and when I and I'm, this is a side note, it has nothing to do. But I just had a woman sign a lease on a property on Peyton Ave, right off of McCann, right off of Turnpike. She's been living in a hotel, 
has her voucher, chasing down rentals and never, never catching it, never catching it. She, I don't even know how she got my cell phone number. But before I hung up, I'm like, well, let me take that off the market. I got to give it to her. And the only, these, these, the problems in this city can be broken, but it has to be broken with the same vigor that they were set up with. There is no middle ground, like use, use Amara, for example. There is no, you need voices that this is what it is. And then give these people with those voices the tools and support to, to smooth it out so we know what we're doing. Right. Because right? you got to, there's a lot of, this, especially these younger voices. I'm mentoring some kids that have better ideas. I don't even, I'm like, what? That's a thing. You can, I'm asking them, can you do that? Right? Like, right. let me call my lawyer because I don't know. And then I'd be like, yeah, you can tell me, how'd you know you can do that? Right. Right. Damon is common sense. Oh, well, it, I didn't have it, you know, but listen to listen to them because they're the ones that's going to take it up. And li- there's so many different things that can be done to break. You got youth that incredibly on it. You have strong advocates. You need to stop looking at these people as advocates, as a organizer, right? Or as a community person. These are these are advocates. These are change makers. These are influencers. These are people that uh, that will direct a new city, whether you like it or not. Well, we believe that you talking like that as a landlord yourself will spark new imagination about what landlords should be doing, how they should be acting, and how you all should be part of these intentionalities to to stop the violence that's going on. Damon Harris is a landlord, but he is also offering many services. How can people continue to follow you and see what Teal House Company is all about? Right, just it's just Tillhouse Company. You can find me and everything that we do at Tillhouse Company. Tillhousecompany.com is our site, and we everything there is a portal to everything that we do. We are constantly. This is my one plug. We are constantly looking for responsible investors. What I mean by responsible, we are not going to price out a, a community. We are going to engage legacy residents. If that's not what you do, you already know not to call my number and that we are always reaching out for people to be a tool for, for change. So that's Tillhouse Company. You find it, we're there. We're always active. We're always somewhere. I'm always available to have some type of conversation about this, especially when it's purpose-driven and result-focused. And last question, is there anything you would like to tell the listeners that is their responsibility to do as you close out this conversation with us? All right, well, when it comes to housing, we all have the opportunity. It's not, don't leave it up to someone else. Be curious, you know, be engaging. You don't have to run a meeting, but listen to a conversation. And don't just listen to a conversation and then talk about it as if you have all the information. Continue to be engaged. We live in a universe where action is rewarded by more action. So we take action, action will follow. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Damon Harris, for joining us today on Race Capital at WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Thanks again, Damon. Thank you.
But not big dog. 